the reading of our scripture this morning. True. I, I don't know if everybody heard that, but yeah, looking particularly for 18 to 40 for this case, but you could, even if you're not 18 to 40, you could still be a match for somebody else. Is that correct? Or do you have to be 18 to 40 to, okay, you have to be 18 to 40 to do the swab. Um, but yeah, it may, you may not be a match for Eli, but you may be a match for somebody else. So if you're willing to, to help out in that way, consider going to that link and checking that out. Okay, so our reading today from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You may be seated. Wealth. What is wealth? I looked on the internets and I found this definition on Investopedia, which I did not know was a thing, but now I do. Quote, wealth measures the value of all the assets of worth owned by a person, community, company, or country. Wealth is determined by taking the total market value of all physical and intangible assets owned, then subtracting all debts. Essentially, wealth is the accumulation of scarce resources. They go on to say, specific people, organizations, and nations are said to be wealthy when they are able to accumulate many valuable resources or goods. Wealth can be contrasted to income in that wealth is a stock and income is a flow and it can be seen in either absolute or relative terms, end of quote. So the value of all that you have accumulated, tangible or virtual, minus what you owe for, 
And the world says that's what determines wealth. Now, how wealthy is wealthy? Who is wealthy? How can we tell? The wealthiest man in the world is Elon Musk. He is worth, whatever that means, $239 billion. That's almost a quarter of a trillion dollars. They said that he could buy every professional sports team in the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, and the NHL and still have money left over. He's wealthy. The world's wealthiest man. Now, come back to earth. Um, (laughs) Following a section in 1 Timothy, as we worked through 1 Timothy, the last thing we looked at was a section that talked about honoring elders, financially supporting elders. Look at what Paul addresses next in his letter to Timothy. He addresses slaves, people seeking gain through religious activity, and the desire to be rich. Now, this could have very, very, very easily been three messages in this passage. But there's a thread that runs all the way through it that's going to tie it all together, I think. So we're going to, we're going to run as fast as we can to get through all ten verses and see how all this comes together. So we'll start in verse 1 because that's the first verse, right? Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, it's very clear as we start today that Paul is addressing in this verse whom? All those who are under a yoke as bondservants. Now, the Greek word for bondservant is the word doulos. And the definition of that word is, quote, a person who is legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose is determined by their master. Let me read that again. Doulos. A person who is legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose is determined by their master. Makes you feel funny, doesn't it? Ew, yuck. Now, let me make you feel even funnier. The word for master in the Greek is despotes. And you know what it means? It means one who owns someone else. So Paul is addressing here people who are legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose is determined by their despotes, their master. Think about that. Now it seems to us that this is at base level simply wrong. And at best in our estimation this is completely inhuman. You can't own other people. And I cannot imagine what it must have been like or what it is like to be owned by someone else and exist solely for their purposes. But now watch this. According to estimates, and there's a a wide range here, there were anywhere from 33% to 50% of the population of the Roman Empire that were slaves. Up to half of the population were slaves in the Roman Empire. 
one in three up to one in two people within the vast Roman Empire were owned by other people. They could have become slaves in various ways. Alistair Begg notes that they could have become slaves by being POWs. They could have become slaves by being criminals. They could have owed debts that they couldn't have owned by, uh, paid back. They could have been kidnapped. They could have been sold by someone, maybe even their parents. They could have been born as a slave in slavery. And see, we have a, a problem here in America processing this because... We don't see it in our day, but also the only slavery that we think about and know about is the chattel slavery of the early days of America, where we were shipping people, specifically mostly from West Africa, over here and using them as forced laborers. And as hard as it may be, we've got to not think of that when we talk about bond servants in this passage today. Okay? We think of what was common in those early days with the transatlantic slave trade bringing mostly African slaves as property to be sold and used for labor. And it is an aberrant, hideous blight in our nation's formation and past. I'm not excusing that at all. But, you can't say but to that, I have to. But in the Roman Empire, slaves weren't just that. There were people who were slaves like that in the Roman Empire. Many slaves in the Roman Empire were professionals, even being doctors, lawyers, teachers, or a vast array of other roles in the civic and economic life of their day. And again, I'm not trying to minimize it, but it's important that we get Paul right here. Paul is not advocating for slavery in any form. But he knew well its reality in his world. He knew the crowd to which he was writing. So he urges Timothy, urges him in this letter to address those who were slaves in Ephesus and how to conduct themselves. And note, he doesn't urge Timothy to start a revolt and free these people. And neither did Jesus. Paul does say in other passages like 1 Corinthians 7 and in Philemon that if slaves can obtain their freedom, they should. And if people own slaves, it would be good to free them. But he also says, if you're a slave when you're converted, don't seek to not be a slave. Remain a slave. And remember, Paul is addressing persistent problems in the Ephesian church in this letter to Timothy. And so it would seem that slaves were unsettled and they were disrespecting their masters. Maybe asserting their displeasure with their situation. So Paul says what? You have a right to be upset. You should revolt against your masters. He doesn't say that. What Paul says is, do what you do. Be who you are. And know what the goal is in doing and being those things. And here, at first in this passage, these people are slaves. And how are those slaves to live? What are they to do? Paul says they are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now again, take that in for a second. All right, all you slaves in Ephesus... Honor your masters. Count that person that owns you as worthy of all honor. That word honor keeps coming up here in 1 Timothy, doesn't it? 
We've said it means reverence and financial support. So how does that apply here? A slave is to regard their master as worthy of all honor. Contextually, it's obvious that this is not about paying their owners. They can't or they wouldn't be slaves. So Paul is saying that these slaves are to hold their owners in high regard, worthy of respect and obedience, and serve for the payment that they will receive. Your service and your heart show your honor. So note that. This is not Paul saying do a good job for them, even though that's surely implied, but instead it's Paul telling these slaves that their attitude, their heart towards their owners is to be one of reverence and respect. Check your heart, slaves, and make sure they're pure towards those people who own you. Check your heart, slaves, And show all honor to the people who are your masters, who own you, and who you exist for the sole purpose of doing what they want you to do. Christianity is a miracle. How in the world could this actually be a thing? How many of you like your bosses? We usually don't like our bosses who are there to tell us what to do. So many Christians can't even pull that off. But Paul is calling on owned human beings to harbor respect in their hearts for the other human beings who own them. And that's miraculous enough. But why? The question is, why would Paul call people to do this? So that, anytime you see that phrase, give it special attention. It's the payoff coming after what was said before. Why then? Why should these own people show respect in their hearts and in their actions toward those people who own them? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Wow! Really? Yes, really. Check your heart, slaves, and honor your masters so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Mm. Slaves, be good slaves. Be the best slaves down into the depths of your hearts because what you do, how you feel, and how you relate to others are to proclaim the very name of God. Don't miss that. And your life is to be an epistle read by those you share life with that literally teaches those around you Christian doctrine. Oh my goodness. More on this later, but Paul's not nearly done. Verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So, if a Christian slave is owned by a Christian brother, then surely Paul would say, hey, petition your brother to let you go, right? Well, I guess they could. But instead of seeking an alteration in the situation, the slave is to see his role and his master's role, and not use their kinship in Christ as a reason to disrespect their owners. Conversely, they're to double their efforts, 
since their masters are believers and beloved. Honor and respect any owner, slave, but double down and serve and honor all the more if your owner worships the same God as you. All the more if your owner is owned by the same Christ as you. And it really just, I just want to look and say, are you kidding me, Paul? Really? Nope. Not kidding. Matter of fact, teach and urge these things, he says. He's commanding Timothy to teach these things, not as suggestions if it's convenient for people, but to put them forth as clear, apostolic, God-breathed teaching that should be urgent to the teachers and those they're teaching. This is a big deal. That's not to be soft-pedaled and apologized for. But instead should be heralded and clearly articulated as the very words of God. No wiggle room. No accommodation for your feelings. Matter of fact, adjust your feelings to what the word says. Don't adjust the word to what your feelings say. Mm. How important is this? Look at verses 3 to 5. 3 through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's a pretty strong three verses right there. In speaking of slaves showing respect to their masters and serving believing masters doubly well, Paul says... All all that we just read. First, he calls this teaching and the command a doctrine. And then he compares it to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. All this for slaves respecting their masters? Absolutely. Because, remember, the so that was so that God gets honor in how these slaves relate to their masters. That's so that. There's your doctrine. There's your teachings of Jesus. There's your godliness. Because that's the undergirding, listen, of literally everything we do. The sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness is the goal. How it's packaged... Old, new, shiny, tried and true is not really that important. Are they the words of Christ and does it accord with godliness? If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with these words, what kind of people are these people? Paul is not hesitant in saying what he thinks. He says that those teachers who aren't in agreement with these things are four things. He says four things about these teachers who teach something different than what he's teaching. First, they're puffed up with conceit. Second, they understand nothing. Third, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy. And fourth, they have an unhealthy craving for quarrels about words. And that controversy and those quarrels about words produce five things. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Anybody know people like that? 
Anybody are people like that? And all that happens among people who are three things, depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, and people who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Now that is three messages in and of itself, and we don't have time to linger there. But make that list. Make the list of, as you go back through this and look at this again, uh, the teachers who aren't in agreement are four things. The controversy and quarrels produce five things. And all that happens among people who are these are three things. That's so. Again, we could dwell there a long time. All being said, we don't have time to, to dwell here. People who don't agree with the sound doctrine that Paul is telling Timothy to teach and command are bad people teaching bad things that lead to bad things among bad people. You say, well, that's harsh. Absolutely, it's harsh. And listen, if we don't agree with, if we don't line up with the doctrine, if we question the doctrine, accuse the doctrine, and say the doctrine doesn't matter, we are these people. Is this how the people of God are supposed to sound? Absolutely not. Is this how I sound? Is this how you sound? Is this how we sound? Arguing about everything all the time. Especially that's not what the Bible means. And it's different in our day and time. And our culture is different than that culture. We don't have slaves anymore. We're all slaves. If we don't line up with sound doctrine... All we can know, do, and teach is conceit, controversy, quarrels, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constantion, depravity of mind, deprived of truth, and seeking our own gain through the church and through the things of God. And yeah, that's bad. But there is a means for gain in our life with Christ. And gain sets the tone for the next two verses, verses 6 and 7. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. And so here we come to it. We don't seek to be godly for our gain in material wealth. We don't serve God to build our kingdom. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And this word contentment is the thread that runs through all of this. Slaves should be content. False teachers need to learn contentment with the doctrine. Those seeking to be rich and love money, in the coming verses, need to find contentment outside of money. So what is contentment? How would you define it? The Greek word is... Oh, I don't have... Yeah, I do have it up here. Autarkia. Sounds like a vehicle, right? Let's go get it in the Artakia. <laughs> Two times in the New Testament, sufficiency once and contentment once. And listen to this. Tell me if you want contentment after hearing this. A perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. Sufficiency of the necessities of life. A mind contented with its lot. Contentment. Contentment. Alistair Begg described it as satisfaction with what you have and a lack of desire for what you don't have. 
Which leads me to ask, am I content? Are you content? Because Paul is telling Timothy that godliness, being like God, doing godly things, when paired with contentment, is great gain. If you're godly and have a contented mind, you need, actually you don't even want anything else. What do you want? Nothing. I've got it all. Have you ever found a time in your life where you were just like, I've got it all. I've got everything I need. I've got everything I want. What if you could? What if you could be there? What if you could live there? Where you need and you want nothing because you've got it all. While the greedy, arrogant folks seek more and more, creating divisions and conflicts, godly, contented people have the very things they desire. They've gained it all. It's not about getting things, but rather removing desires for those things that we used to previously want. You want gain? Learn contentment with godliness. And this is not like universe juice and harmonious nirvana kumbaya stuff. This is the very purpose of our existence as image bearers of God. It's perfection of Eden realized as much as possible until the recreation of all things. It's communion with God and delighting in Him in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, as Paul would tell the Philippians. And I would say that's great gain indeed. For Paul says in our passage, we brought nothing into the world... And we cannot take anything out of the world. Every single one of you people, every single person that's ever been born, started this life, and every single person that's ever lived and died will finish their life with nothing. You came into the world with nothing, and you're going to leave with nothing. You're like, no, they're going to bury me with my stuff. You're still not taking it with you. It's just going in the septic tank that they just put in. (laughs) Going to the dump, y'all. Well, I'm going to leave an inheritance for my kids. They're going to die too, and they're not going to take it with them. You brought nothing into the world. You were a crying, whimpering, naked mess when you came into the world. And when you die, you may be wearing some clothes, but you're not taking them with you. We started this life and we will finish it with nothing. First breath and last breath are all the same. We bring nothing in, we take nothing out. That should clue us into what true life is all about in between. It's not things and stuff. It's about God and contentment. Complete and utter dependence on God and His sovereign will. You did nothing to get yourself born. All your days are written in a book and God will decide when that last day is. You're like, uh-uh, uh-huh. Complete and utter dependence on God and His sovereign will. That's from the beginning to the end. Why can't we get a hold of that in the middle? That's what Paul's saying here. And as a matter of fact, Paul says, well, just look at verse 8. But, my goodness gracious... If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, (laughs) come on. 
Come on. Right? Um, hmm. Now there's contentment, and then there's contentment. I want other people to be content. (laughs) But I want to be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We're born with nothing and we die with nothing. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now I've searched the, the, the Greek words and I've searched the commentaries and I've listened to people. And you know what this means? It means if we've got food and clothing, then we're content. If we have nothing else but food and clothing, content. (laughs) What? Now let's be honest. Can anybody in this room today say this and mean it? I cannot. I should be able to. There are people who say, well, that that word covering or clothing is covering. It it probably means shelter as well. It doesn't. It means clothing that covers your body. So I'm not naked and I've got a little something to nibble on. I'm good. House, cars, stuff, things, nest egg, retirement account, insurance, dental insurance. Surely, I mean, come on. We need dental insurance, right? <laughs> you start dealing teeth and tires, you're going to spend some money, y'all. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Can I get a, something else? Paul is saying that contentment is attainable in the material world with two things, food and clothing. Now listen, that's convicting. If it's not convicting, you ain't hearing it right. How many of us would be content, and remember that word meant a perfect condition of life in which you need no aid or no support, sufficiency as of the necessities of life, a mind contented with its lot, with food and clothing. Sleeping on the street somewhere. A nice hot bowl of soup from the soup kitchen. And a t-shirt and some jeans. This is miraculous. If you have food and clothing and were godly, could you say that you were satisfied with what you have? That may seem impossible, but our view of what's necessary has changed over a period of time, hadn't it? I mean, what would we say we need in order to be content? That'd be a good question to ask and ponder for a while. Paul says he needs food, clothing, and godliness. And he also says we in that. Not just him, but God's people. God's folk. And you're like, hmm. But here's the deal. It is possible. It's possible. And I would say... It's a good call to awareness. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not glorifying poverty, and it's not condemning riches. But the rich and the poor alike need to learn contentment. 
And we all need to know that if it all goes away today or tomorrow, and it certainly can, if it all goes away and we can eat and not be naked, if we're seeking God and His kingdom and emulating Him, contentment is possible. Christianity is a miracle. Actually, may even be saying that contentment is desirable with just those things. Lots to think about there. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So, but we've moved from contentment to something else. We will be content with food and clothes, but... Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's a lot of words. You can be content with next to nothing, but desiring to be rich leads to temptation. And note, he doesn't say being rich leads to this. But desiring to be rich leads to the trap of harmful desire and destruction. You see, wanting to be rich is the exact opposite of being content. I'm not rich, but man, I want to be. I'd like to give it a shot, right? $239 billion. Y'all know how many guitars I could buy with that much money? I like t-shirts. My wife's like, good gosh, she does. It's ridiculous. You know how many t-shirts I could buy with $239 billion? I could buy the Washington Commanders. I don't want to. I'm content without the Commanders. Thank you very much. Dadgummit. I'm not rich, but I want to be. Contentment is not having what you want, but rather wanting what you have. If I want to be rich, I want what I do not have. And the desire to be rich here is said to lead to temptation. Let me read that again. The desire to be rich is said to lead to temptation. Well, if I want to be rich, what will I do to be rich? Will I lie? Cheat? Steal? Kill? To be rich? Well, thou shalt not, right? The pursuit of riches has left a bloody, hateful trail throughout all of history. One might say that it's led countless people into, oh, I don't know, a snare? Into many senseless and harmful desires that have plunged people into ruin and destruction. One might say that. Oh, wait, the Holy Spirit has said that, right? He just said it. A lack of contentment, especially when it comes to riches, leads to the trap of sin and ruin. For those lacking it and for those who become the collateral damage to its pursuit. And Paul is warning Timothy, the church in Ephesus, and us that those who desire riches, even now, fall into a snare, fall into temptation, fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
And Paul is warning Timothy, the church in Ephesus, and us that that's true even now. And we can yeah, but, and look for exceptions in this all that we want to. But I'm afraid that lumps us in with those those that we saw earlier who didn't line up with the doctrine Paul was teaching and who were prone to controversy and dissensions. Yeah, but money can be used for good things. True. But if you desire to be rich, this is you. If I desire to be rich, this is me. No questions asked. Money and riches are not and should never be the goal in and of themselves. And if that is your goal, if that's your aim, to be rich, you are headed for temptation. Period. So check your heart. Slaves, not slaves. If your goal is to be rich, you are headed into temptation, into a trap. Senseless, harmful desires leading to ruin and destruction. That's just simple math there. For, well, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Ah, this verse. You've heard this one, right? We've heard it lots of times, haven't we? At least the first part, or the first part misquoted, or the first part generalized or something. And I guess, really to boil it down, we've probably heard in the past that what? Money is the root of all evil. Or the love of money is the root of all evil. When what it says is, for, coming out of the previous verse, talking about many people seeking riches and falling into a snare, that happens for... The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now that's a really big statement. And it was actually a common proverb in Paul's day, according to commentator Philip Towner. One that was well known and oft repeated. So Paul wasn't saying something these people hadn't heard before. It was a proverb that was quoted and oft repeated in that culture. And it's really self-explanatory, right? If someone loves money... It's the beginnings of all kinds of possible evils in their lives. And note, he doesn't say that having money is the root of all evils. This is not having money, but loving money. There are many wealthy people who love God and honor Him with their wealth. But those wealthy people who don't love their money. And that's possible. And it's possible to be wealthy and not love your money. But it is a constant danger to the rich, the poor, the slave, the master, and all those in between to develop a love for money that brings with it the possibility, nay, I would say the sure-fired probability of all kinds of evils. Again, lying, cheating, stealing, killing, coveting, arrogance, pride, jealousy, self-evils. Self-pity. These and many more are the possible fruits that have its roots in the love of money. Watch your heart, church. And Paul finishes our passage today by saying, It is through this craving, the love of money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. All kinds of evils is bad enough, but by craving money, some have done what? 
They've wandered away from the faith. This is a top-tier emergency. Some people have found the claims of the God of the universe lacking in comparison to their love of money. And they have forsaken Christ for cash. Jesus, nah, give me money. I love money. I want more of it. The old Rockefeller quote, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. I'm going to pursue money. And how does that turn out? Well, in the here and now, they have pierced themselves with many pangs. The word pangs means sorrow, consuming grief, and pain. You ever hear all the stories of the people who won the lottery and it ruined their lives? Literally people dying and being killed and kidnapped and people being disowned and your family deserting you because you weren't sharing your money with them. Sorrow, consuming grief and pain. They've forsaken the God who was a consuming fire and have been consumed by grief, sorrow, and pain instead. That's the outcome of loving money. Don't play with it. Don't entertain it. And again, I'm not talking about money in and of itself, but the love of it. The pursuit of it as a means of finding joy and satisfaction. It will not just disappoint you, it will destroy you. If the love of money is in your heart, Paul tells Timothy and us, the Holy Spirit says to us, and he's not whispering, he's shouting, if the love of money is in your heart, you are in grave danger. He had seen it firsthand. So have we, right? And I know that there's just that little gnawing thing in the back of our heads and in the forefront of our hearts that says, but man, I'd still like to try it. Because that would make me comfortable. And there's the God that we worship in our culture. Comfort. We're not seeking contentment. We're seeking comfort. And more comfort. And more comfort. And more comfort. And more comfort. And if I get a little bit more comfort, then I'm going to want more comfort. Whereas contentment says, if I've got food and clothes with godliness, I've got great gain. Let me tell you what, y'all, that's a tough passage. Not tough to, to figure out. I believe any, anybody in here could sit down and read this and say exactly what it means without difficulty. I also think I don't know of anybody in here who could say, yeah, I'm good here. I don't really need this word. So we turn to application. Three C's. And I know there are seven C's, but we're just going to cover three of them this morning. And these are tough, y'all. Controversy, cash, and contentment. Now, what's not in the application points that is obvious, and maybe I should have done four application points, but I'll just be a good employee. Shut up about your boss. Sorry, I shouldn't say shut up. Judah gets me in trouble when I say shut up because he goes home and he says, Mommy, why did Bow Wow say shut up? We should be the best employees out there. That's not in the application points. But it's clear in in the statement. We're like, well, I'm not a slave. We are. You are. (laughs) You're working for money that somebody else has, so you are a slave. 
and you should be the best doggone slave there is out there. And your life and your ministry in your job, which is a ministry, the doctrine of vocation is clear, and thank God for the Reformation that Luther and those guys clearly showed that. You don't have to be cloistered somewhere, withdrawn from the world to have a ministry. You go out and you work, and you let your life be that daily epistle read by men that says, that's the best doggone employee I got. And when they ask you why, you say, so that I may adorn the doctrine of God with glory, that you might know him. That's not in the application points, but there you go. We, we covered it anyway. So first is controversy. Two things here. First and foremost, stop arguing with the Bible. Stop telling God and other people why the Bible is wrong. Stop it. Shut. Oh, no, I won't say it. Stop, yeah, budding and start, yes, lording. Well, I know the Bible says this, but it can't mean that. It does. God wouldn't tell people to be good slaves. He does. God wouldn't condone people owning other people. Masters, be good masters. Slaves, be good slaves. And we go, oh, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. No, no, stop it. And what we covered here today... The person who does this is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, slander. Oh, my thing switched on me. Oh, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Stop telling the Bible why it's wrong. Stop trying to explain away the clear doctrine because it doesn't make you comfortable. Conform your life to the doctrine. Don't conform the doctrine to your life. That's part A of controversy. The second is this. My goodness gracious. We live in a world that thrives on controversy. That thrives on dissensions and envy and slander and evil suspicions. Father, forgive me, I have sinned. I posted something on Facebook yesterday. And it was controversial. Nothing wrong with that. But me seeking that controversy, there's something wrong with that. And I remember being the guy who used to post things on Facebook to start an argument. And I was going to tell everybody why I was right and they were wrong. And literally couldn't wait to get to the next stoplight hoping it was red so I could pick my phone back up and type a response to that dummy who obviously didn't agree with me. I don't do that anymore. And again, I, I'm, I should not have posted that yesterday. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. We're so prone to controversy in our culture. News, politics, in our jobs. Our our boss is a jerk and let me tell you 20 reasons why. And even with each other. Now I'm not suggesting that we don't contend earnestly for the faith. But can we just stop nitpicking each other for goodness sake? 
taking everything as an offense and holding each other in contempt all the time over everything we like or don't like. The biblical pattern is different. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, church, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or... Don't go on it. I keep getting flipped back here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 4, 2-3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Synthke to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I urge you, church, I entreat you, church, to agree in the Lord. Yeah, but I don't like some of the things that preacher says. Well, let's talk about it. Let's engage it. Let's have a nice, rational conversation about it. And let's not nitpick each other over the things we don't like about each other. Newsflash, I don't like all y'all either. I don't like some things about you. You don't like everything about me. It's all right. I live in a house with five other people. Guess who gets on my nerves? Those five other people. Guess whose nerves I get on? Those five other people. And And that dog who I love and would strangle sometimes. You didn't have to bring that up, Don. Thank you. Watch this, though, quickly. I know I'm about out of time. Keep getting them. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? This is going on in Corinth. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to trial trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Watch this. But brother goes to law against brother. Dadgummit. This keeps going back. If y'all click, I'm going to read off of here. Brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather just be defrauded? but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The Holy Spirit through Paul just said, it's okay to be wronged. Deal with it and love your brother and settle it. Don't go to somebody else and so-and-so, blah-blah-blah, so-and-so. Can you believe that? No, I can't believe it. Wow. How about you go to your brother and say, that bothers me. That offends me. And we need to talk about it. Or, why not just rather be wronged and forgive your brother and walk away and love him? Well, that's, that's just not right. Why not rather just be defrauded? You can take it. You can have it. It doesn't matter. Because what's more important is that I love you and serve you. And I do all things without grumbling and complaining.
Oh, but we're prone to controversy. Alistair Begg says, When I'm concerned about my name, my rights, my just desserts, then I am at my least useful in the kingdom of heaven. When I'm concerned about my name, my rights, my just desserts, then I am at my least useful in the kingdom of heaven. Let's not be people given to controversy, especially here. That's controversy. Cash. Money, right? What do we do with money? Give it all away? I don't think that's the answer. But be careful. Money is rooted in the world's system. And the world is our what? Our enemy. There is no sin or righteousness in wealth or poverty. But Paul was clear in this passage today that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and those who desire to get rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Check your heart for the love of money. Scour every corner of your life looking for the love of money and throw it out. Cast it out. The Bible does not condemn being wealthy. There are plenty of people in the Old and the New Testament who are wealthy. But it also says that wealth always brings difficulty. John Piper says this, My guess is a lot of rich people object immediately saying something like, No, it says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not bad. To which Piper says, Excuse me? It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, period, not a rich man who loves his money. It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Money is dangerous. If you have it and depend on it, it will kill you. If you don't have it and crave it, it will kill you. Money can kill us because it reveals our hearts, end of quote. The account that he's referencing there as far as harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the end of the passage in Mark says this, And Jesus, looking at him, the rich young ruler, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Mm, Listen, we have to navigate a world where money is a necessary thing. But may we navigate in the power of the Holy Spirit that that thing doesn't become a necessary evil that we love. May we not go away from Jesus sorrowful since we have had great possessions or money or what the world calls wealth. Controversy, cash, finally the big word, contentment. From this passage and from the rest of Scripture... It is a high calling and a possibility in the Holy Spirit to be content in the situation that you are in. If you are a slave, contentment helps a slave work hard for his master. 
If you're given to controversy, contentment gets people's eyes off of strife and contention. If you love money, contentment can keep us from the love of money. I wish I had a different job. I wish I was a baller. I wish I was taller. I wish blah, blah, blah. I'm five foot six. Actually, it's like 5.5.98 something or other. My driver's license for years said 5'8", because I thought I was 5'8". I'm not, y'all. I ain't never been (laughs) 5'8". Even in my tallest Crocs, I'm not 5'8". Can I be content being short? Sure. Am I always? No. Can you learn contentment? And the scriptural answer is a resounding yes. Yes. Philippians 2, 1 to 8. Watch this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You think Jesus was content? You bet your hind quarters he was. And he served everybody to the point of death, thinking more of them than he did of his own rights, his own privileges. His own godness. Now, he never gave up his godness. But he, came, he became obedient to the point of death. So Paul says, if there's any comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of that same mind. When you care more about serving other people than yourself, you're on the road to contentment. Philippians 4, 10 to 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Elizabeth Elliot said, The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Wealthiest person in the world. I'm going to float a theory. It ain't me. It's also not Elon Musk. Some of y'all know this story. I'm going to finish with it. I'm reading a passage here from Julia Charleston from Foundry Ministries. I haven't searched them out completely. What I saw looked really solid. This is really solid. Corey Tinboom and her sister Betsy were prisoners in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. Her family was called hiding Jews in their home and were thrown into Ravensbrück Camp Prison. Amongst her imprisonment, Corey tells of a time of Thanksgiving in her book, The Hiding Place, which everybody should read The Hiding Place, by the way. Corey and Betsy were able to smuggle a tattered Bible into their flea-infested barracks, which Nazi officers would never enter. 
When the passage, be thankful in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, was revealed to Betsy, she insisted that they be thankful for everything and began praying aloud. Betsy thanked God for all things, but when she thanked Him for even the fleas, Corey disagreed. She hated fleas. They were nasty, pesky little bugs that kept biting her legs, and she would not be thankful for them. However, Betsy persisted, and Corey succumbed to being thankful in all circumstances. Later, they heard the Nazi officers refused to enter the barracks because of the fleas. The fleas kept them safe from being molested and abused. Dozens of desperate women were free to hear the comforting, hope-giving word of God, and God made sure their deepest needs were met. Sometimes, blessings come out of adversity. Fleas look different for everyone. Financial issues, marital crisis, or health problems can overwhelm our thoughts. God gives many warnings in Scripture that unthankfulness leads to pointless thinking. It takes practice to be thankful in spite of, and I would add, in the midst of our trials or our fleas. We must be intentional to cultivate, to nourish or fertilize, and practice thanksgiving. End of quote. Sometimes the wealthiest people are those who know the value of fleas and the provision of God in and by those fleas. This is godliness with contentment, and it is great gain. This is true wealth. May we all be so wealthy with this godliness and this contentment. Let's pray. God, we confess and proclaim, as for this God, His way is perfect. Oh, we'd have done it differently. Bless me, Lord, means make me more comfortable more often than not to us. But God, may our prayer for contentment be the true blessing that we desire. Godliness with contentment makes us good slaves, good masters, people who are not contentious and who crave controversy, people who are not seeking money for the love of it. God teaches this contentment and your perfect plan in the midst of it all. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat breakfast with us.